Amen, and thank you, Melissa, for that uh, God-honoring worship that reminds us even of the very things we've been talking about lately. Um, I want to just uh, begin by giving a, a quick thank you also again to Nick and the elders for how they are so um, ahead of the game in allowing us the opportunity to meet in the way that we are meeting and yet still uh, make a, a as safe as possible environment for everybody. Um, they have put a lot of work into this, and I will say that um, uh, places with a much larger footprint than us um, are still working through and trying to struggle through this issue, so we are grateful uh, for those who have, who have led us in this way. And I want to just uh, say that um, if, uh, <clears throat> if you haven't been tracking, we are uh, making our way through Psalm 139. Uh, if you would like, uh, you can open your Bibles up to Psalm 139, and, and uh, we'll be looking at some uh, tail-end verses of that. As you know, we've been studying a very in-depth study of the attributes of God, and we have looked at uh, <clears throat> no small number of those attributes. And last week we began uh, three attributes of God that I have kind of affectionately called the omnis, and that being uh, the omnipresence of God, the omniscience of God, and today we're going to be looking at the omnipotence of God, that is the power of God. Let's, uh, let's just begin uh, by devoting this time to prayer as we, uh, as we look at what God would have us, uh, for us this morning. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, it is a privilege to worship you this day, to worship the Almighty, the All-Knowing, and the God who is everywhere, even in our midst. And we know, Lord, that you hear our worship today. We know that you will attend to us as we look into your word. My prayer today is that it would meet every need, every heart here today, that you would encourage us by your truth, and that you would stretch us and move us beyond where we were even when we came in this morning. Father, may you be glorified as we look into the beauty of your very attributes. Give us clarity of, of thought and mind. And my prayer, Lord, is that it would find a place in all of our hearts that we would understand and know you better, and that we would be able to live our Christian lives out in such a way that would honor you even more and more each day. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> all right, well, um, I just want to take a moment here and review a couple of things. Uh, if you are at Psalm 139, you will remember if you were here last week, we began the first half of this psalm. And this is a psalm that begins by speaking of the omniscience of God. We, we describe the omniscience as God knowing all things. And we, we remember how this began where it says, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me, and you know when I sit down and when I rise up. And then this litany of different areas where God can, uh, can uh, know uh, what he knows about me as an individual and you as individuals made in his image. It speaks of, his, of our unique personality in verse 1. It spoke of the rhythms of daily life when I sit down, when I rise up, and, and the secret aspects of our hearts that God knows our thoughts from afar, and he understands us. He understands the direction of our life that you scrutinize my path and my lying down and you are intimately acquainted with all of my ways, with all of the decisions that have to occur and all the steps that I have to take in a, in a day. You know these things, Lord, because of your omniscience. And 
you even know in verse 4 it said, my preformed speech, we talked about that if you remember that, words that haven't even come off of my tongue yet, you know what those words are, O oh God, because of this intimacy that we share, and ultimately this, pers- this aspect of my personal limitations and my boundaries. And all of this in verse 6 is just unfathomable to me. The psalmist says, such knowledge is too wonderful to me. It is too high, I cannot attain it. And so we spent time learning and just, uh, just kind of reveling in the omniscience of God. And then we looked at the omnipotence of God beginning in verse 7 where we learn that, that, I'm sorry, the omnipresence of God where we learn that he is everywhere. And it begins with similar language. Where can I go from thy spirit or where can I flee from thy presence? And then he begins this list. If I go here, if I go there, if I go everywhere, I can never escape you. You are everywhere. And we noted that God is present in heaven. If I ascend to heaven, he is present in the grave. If I make my bed in the grave, he is present in the spirit world. If I take the wings of the dawn and fly away, if I am buried in the depths of the sea, you are my guide, you are my protector, your hand, your right hand will lay hold of me. And even if I find myself in darkness, you are there. And so we see the omniscience of God and the omnipresence of God. And this morning, I want to leave you with a very powerful, powerful truth about God, and no pun intended, the omnipotence of God, speaking of the all-powerful nature of God this morning. Wonderful, wonderful lesson before us today, teaching from his word on the omnipotence of God. Now, I want to begin before we read the text just with a definition. If you're taking notes here, there's some terms. Of course, you're starting to learn a little bit of Latin out of this deal. Uh, omnus, of course, you remember what that word means from last week. It means all. And potentia, you might even just know what that word means. Does it sound like a word in English at all that is familiar to anybody? Potential or potency or power is what that word means. And so when you put omnus next to potentia, you are speaking of one who has all power, all potentia. And the working definition will be exactly that. This is the attribute of God, whereby he is all-powerful and fully able to accomplish his perfect will. Now, we have noted that these words do not appear in Scripture, but their concepts are everywhere in Scripture, and that's okay. God is all-powerful, and he's fully able to accomplish his will. This This definition kind of reminds me of Daniel 4.35. You remember King Nebuchadnezzar who had a large degree of power himself, uh, king of Babylon. And uh, in his, um, well, you might call it his post-conversion state, he recognizes the God of the Bible as being all-powerful. And he says these words, that all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he, being God, does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. So whether we're in heaven or on earth, God does his will. And that no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can, the old King James says, stay his hand. I mean, can you imagine as the hand of God moves and a mere mortal earthling says, hold on, God. Let, let, let me halt your hand here. This is the imagery that even the once pagan king Nebuchadnezzar uh, gives to us here of God's hand moving with omnipotence. And so this is the idea that God is all-powerful and that he's fully able to accomplish 
his will. So are these just ideas that come from theologians' minds and philosophers' minds, or are these things that come from the Scripture? Well, we'll answer that with Psalm 139, and we'll begin in verse 13, and I'll read the text entirely here, uh, uh, at least beginning in verse 13. It says, For thou didst form my inward parts, and thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from thee when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as of yet there was not one of them. How precious also are thy thoughts to me, O God! How vast the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. And when I awake, I am still with thee. Very, very powerful words of Scripture as we continue in our study looking at the omnipotence of God. And if you have your notes in front of you today, I'm now at the point where it is time for omnipotence exposited. We're going to actually go verse by verse. All, all exposited means is we're just exposing the truth of Scripture to our hearing before our eyes here. Let's test this doctrine of omnipotence with the Bible and see if it's there. We're going to see in verse 13 and 14, first of all, if you'd write in, that God exercises power over human life. Would you write that in under your notes? That God exercises power over human life. Look at verses 13 and 14. For you did form my inward parts, and you weaved me in my mother's womb. Very fascinating language that the psalmist uh, gives us here speaking first of all to God's action, what he does here with us, that he, he forms our inward parts and he weaves us together in, his mother's, in our mother's womb. And when you think about it, of all the creations of the earth, of all the things that have been made by the hand of God, is it not true that the creation of God making man in his own image is the most profound? is the most complex. When we just think of the outer structure of our lives, of our, of, our, of our parts, of our body parts, really, nothing is more marvelous than the human being thinking of all of the systems and the, the, uh, the uh, medical and scientific realities of what we are as men and women, of all the masterpieces of the mountains and of the seas and of the stars and the planets and the multitude of solar systems. It is the most marvelous to be made in God's own image with a mind and emotions and a will to express appropriate worship, which we will see in a moment here. You have formed my inward parts, the scripture says. And then it goes even deeper here. It says, you, you weaved me in my mother's womb. What a beautiful, beautiful picture of intimacy as the creator God is, is making a creature, making a human in his image, but choosing to make that in the location of the safety and security of a mother's womb. Think of the intimacy here and the closeness here. We all, we all can see this here. And we see the hand of God at work, the almighty hand of God as it is weaving and working. It's almost like a divine embroidery project here on the part of the hand of God weaving making me in the depths, making me in the, in the darkness 
of the mother's womb. And we, we remember from last week that there is no darkness to God because he sees everything and he is everywhere. So light or dark is like to thee, the scripture said last week. But here, it is the darkness of the mother's womb making the beginning aspects of our very life, of our very existence. Now, I need to say, especially in our day, that by no means is David here writing or intending to speak to the issue of abortion. Uh, that, that would be the furthest thing from David's mind. Uh, in a day where the Hebrew understood that all children are, are gifts of the Lord, all children are blessings from on high. In fact, the Hebrew mind understood that a, that a man, a, a leader of his home who had many children was referred to as a, a man who had a quiver full of, full of arrows. And arrows are not merely meant to just kind of look at and admire. Arrows are meant to develop and, and prune and hone and sharpen and put in a bow and fire out one day as an instrument of accomplishing God's will on earth. And mom and dad, although it's difficult, there will come a time when we must launch our children forth after adequate preparation. But to be sure, David, the furthest thing from his mind would be abortion, but unfortunately in our day, this text speaks to it, does it not? Even though David would have no understanding of the concept of, of what is done in modern day, uh, today we, we have to at least consider it. And what I think is so ironic, as we see this beautiful picture of God weaving this new human life in the mother's womb, while he's not addressing it, it certainly speaks to this corrupt day in which we live in which the ungodly, who, ironically enough, in their own fear and panic, while, while scurrying to wash their hands and protect themselves, I'm speaking of the ungodly, who, who have pr a priority of self-protection during this time, in an admittedly dangerous world we live, right? that the ungodly will spend so much effort trying to protect themselves and preserve themselves while we can abort and murder and slaughter over a million children made in the image of God, woven together by the hand of God each year, each year. I mean, it speaks to our utter depravity while we speak, while we make these efforts to save ourselves and we kill those who, by the way, are not in a dangerous world yet, who are in the safest place that a baby could be, who, who are in the most sterile and secure environment that could possibly be for that little child to grow. And it just shows the hypocrisy and utter depravity of the world in which we live. God makes his case immediately clear through the psalmist, you did form my inward parts and you did weave me in my mother's womb. That's God's action under this same point of God having power over human life. Man's response is seen in verse 14. I will give thanks. I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works, O Lord, and my soul knows it very well. Do you see the human response when we come to grips with the divine power being manifested in his power over our human life, over our lives, over the creation of who we are. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And this is reason for thanks. Note the note of thanks here. The, the, the psalmist recognizes 
he sources from God. He recognizes he doesn't just kind of show up and appear on scene. He understands his history as being formed by God, and he gives recognition, and he gives acknowledgement. Quite different from the lack of recognition and the lack of thanks seen in Romans 1, 21. You might want to jot that down. In Romans 1, 21, these these individuals who deny God, they deny his existence, they deny his created uh, uh, order, And in verse 21, it says, even though they knew God. That's a very important thing to understand here. The scripture says every man knows God. Now, it's not the knowledge that you and I share, this deep, intimate knowledge that we've been seeing from the psalmist here. It's a general knowledge to be sure. But Romans 1.21 says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God and note it right here or give thanks. See, that's all he wants is thanks. That's all he wants is proper recognition for where you and I came from, and he wants to be thanked. He wants to be honored. He's not trying to sign you up for a bunch of self-righteous works that you have to go do because of your relationship with him now. Not at all. He, He merely wants thanks, and those that don't give thanks, they become futile in their speculations. Their mind, their foolish heart becomes darkened, and we could talk more about that. But the psalmist gives thanks. He gives recognition and acknowledgement that he and you and I are, note this, precision crafted by the hand of God. You and I are precision crafted by God's hand, and my soul knows it very well, verse 14. My soul, that inner personal, that immaterial aspect, my mind, my volition, my my, my will and my emotions, it knows that you have made me. You've made my outer parts. You've woven my body together, but you've made my soul as well. You've made my inner parts and who I am as an individual. And this is all done under the clause of being fearfully and wonderfully made. Ladies and gentlemen, do you see yourself in this way? Do you see yourself in such a way that I am fearfully and wonderfully made with all of my complexities and idiosyncrasies and and all of my looks, the way I look, the way I speak, all of these things? Can you rest in the fact that you have been fearfully and wonderfully made? My soul knows this well. Let's continue here. That was the first little sub-point under the omnipotence exposited, that God has power over human life and what we are and who we are. But it goes deeper, verse 15. Verse 15 tells us that God is powerful over the infrastructure of who I am. The infrastructure. And I apologize for using big words here. I don't try to use big words. But we're describing the bigness of our God. And sometimes there's just, it just lacks words to capture it here. But the infrastructure, what am I speaking of here? My frame, look at verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. My frame here, that's the infrastructure of who I am. My hard wiring, you could say. My, my humanness, uh, my body structure, my shape, my flesh, my bones, my genetics, my looks, my physique. I'm saying this, beloved, because I think sometimes we struggle with this, especially in our youth. I'm, I'm glad we have young people here because isn't it true? I mean, I remember when I was young, I struggled with my looks. Am I the only one? I, I struggled and you'd look in the mirror and you'd say, I don't know if I like that. And yet 
we're in the face of us being made exactly, exactly how God has designed us to look and to be and to sound like and to, to look like. And there's, a, there's an acceptance here that has to occur of our identity. This is what this psalmist is, is telling us here by showing us how the power of God has been displayed in our lives. It's our infrastructure. It's our body structure. It's our shape. And there is no mistakes, will you note, there is no mistakes in God's work. You are exactly how God intended you to be, exactly how God intended you to look, save sin, right? Accepting sin. Sin is an intruder to uh, how we look and how we act and how we behave and all of that, but uh, apart from sin, God has made us and he has made us marvelously well. My frame was not hidden from you. He goes on as he displays the power of God over our human lives and over the infrastructure of who I am. And can I give you a third one in verse 16? It's our embryonic existence. Another big word, but we know what an embryo is. That is having the, the first little blast of life here that's going far back now. You'll see he's, he's going deeper and deeper into who we are as people. And further and further back in time, my embryonic existence. You say, where do you get that? Well, verse 16, here it is. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance. This is amazing. This is amazing that God, through his knowledge and his power and his all-present nature, he's present in the womb, and it's almost as if he's present prior to us being in the womb. That my eyes, God's eyes, have seen, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. What's an unformed substance? Well, I think it could be a reference to the embryo, not yet formed, not yet shaped. And this is why, this is how some people excuse themselves, thinking that a, a baby in the womb is nothing more than an appendix or a, you know, a gallbladder that you can just remove if you don't need it, if you don't want it. Oh, how far, far from the truth that is. Here, this fearfully, wonderfully made individual being skilly, skillfully wrought as an embryo. It could mean that. It could have a reference to that. It could also have a reference to those un, <clears throat> un, uh, unformed substances as, such as our spirit or our soul or our emotions or those uh, immaterial aspects of who we are that it's not formed yet. And this could include our disposition. This could include our temperament. This could include uh, our propensities. It could include future strengths, future weaknesses. All that make us who we are is formed in this womb, in the embryonic stage here, verse 16. You say, wow, Eli, you're getting deep here. I didn't, I didn't think we would be this deep today. But you know what? I'm about to take you deeper. I'm about to go deeper here, and I'm going to enter a danger zone here, but I'll be in good company with the psalmist and with the men of history who have understood this truth. Let's go deeper, what do you say? Not only is God all-powerful over my human life and the infrastructure of who I am, even my embryonic existence, but God is all-powerful over my destiny, and we might even say my predestiny. <laughs> Look at verse 16. I wouldn't come up with this stuff, trust me. I, I wouldn't preach this if it weren't in the scripture, but verse 16 says it. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and here it is. In thy book, they were all written. What were written? The days. 
my days. The days which were ordained for me. Well, when were these written? Uh, when as of yet there was not one of them. That's when it was written. When was that? I don't know. That was a long time ago. But the days in thy book, they were written. These days didn't just randomly come to be. Do you really believe that? Do you really think that our days are a result of just this proverbial slime or goo or big bang that just kind of comes together and, wow, look at all my days that came out of this. No, no, no. The scriptures say, my days were written in your book before even one of them occurred. How do I explain that? I don't. I don't explain that. I don't know how that happens. I don't understand. And I've been to seminary, and I have pondered this concept year after year of my life, and it just causes me to throw my hands up in worship. I don't know. My God is too big for me to figure that out, how he can work out all of my choices and all of my uh, freedom of expression and freedom of I can walk this way, I can step this way, and yet, overarching it all, God is ordaining those steps. I don't get it, and I don't try to get it, but I preach it. I, I send it out there. And please don't, don't uh, I'm not the chef. I don't make the meal, okay? I ju I'm just the servant, and I just deliver the meal. And so the issue here is God not only shows and displays magnificently his power over human life, his power over the infrastructure of who I am, my even tinier embryonic existence, and even this destiny of mine, planning the events of my life and superintending my life and governing my life in some way, in some cases where I don't even sense he's there sometimes, but he's there. And we know he's there from the, the prior verses here guiding our steps, laying his hand upon me, laying his right hand upon me. You recall from last week, these steps, these days which were ordained for me. Who but God has the power to do this? Who but God can write history before history even occurs? Our God is an amazing, awesome God. Well, just by way of application here, I just want to say only an omnipotent God can create human life. Only an omnipotent, omnipotent God can direct that life before that life even lives. Only an omnipotent God can, can build you and know you through and through. And this is an immense comfort to you as a believer. It ought to be. We can find great comfort in this. Because if you're honest, if I'm honest, I think we would all have to admit that, that deep down, are we not very complex and complicated and sometimes convoluted people? I mean, are we not? I mean, when we're really honest with ourselves and we understand that, you know, it was Augustine who said, I am a puzzle to myself. Augustine, one of the greatest theologians that ever lived, concludes his theology by saying, I'm a puzzle to myself. I'm like this puzzle where all these weird pieces and how do they all fit together? I'm a puzzle and mystery to myself, Augustine said. And we are desperate for a God who understands us and who understands how we do fit together as individuals. And we're all in a profound need of having someone to understand us and to know us with his power to help us in our frailties and help us when we make our mistakes and to help us with our limitations, the limitless God. 
Well, that's omnipotence exposited. I want to just uh, take this a little bit further before we uh, give you some application here, but uh, omnipotence expanded. I can just throw a couple of verses your way here. You can look these up, uh, study them later if you'd like, but Psalm 6211, if you'd write that down, I love this psalm. Psalm 6211, it says, God has spoken once, I have heard it twice, that power belongs to our God. This is a beautiful, beautiful truth, and the Hebrews would sometimes relay very important things like this. God has spoken once, I've heard it twice, that power belongs to our God. It is of only God that he can rightfully say, I've got the power. I've got the power. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is the strength of my life. Who shall I be afraid? You, you don't have the Lord in your life. Trust me, you should be afraid. Automatically, you should be very anxious if you don't have God. But if you have the Lord as the strength of your life, who are you afraid of? What can man do to me? Psalm 24.8, I love this. Who is the king of glory? Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. I think of that children's song. Maybe, kids, you know this song. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. You finish it. There's nothing my God cannot do. And it goes on. Oh, yeah, you got to clap, right? And it goes on. The mountains are his, and all of the, the skies are his handiwork, too. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Do you have a view of God that says this? Does your God have the strength and might that this children's song, this little tiny children's song sings? He's so big, there's nothing he cannot do. Well, I don't want to burst your bubble. There are some things he cannot do. Malachi 3.6 says uh, he cannot change, but praise God. Uh, Titus 1-2 says he cannot lie. Can you imagine God, the God of truth, lying? Second uh, Timothy 2-13 says God cannot deny himself. Praise the Lord because we deny ourselves constantly. And James 1-13 says he cannot be tempted by evil. And there's other things from theology that we know God cannot do. He cannot die. The God of life cannot die. He cannot cease to exist. God cannot violate his nature. God cannot do illogical, contradictory things like build a rock so big that he can't lift it, right? Uh, in college, we used to always play those games. Can, okay, if God can do anything, can he build a rock so big that he can't lift it? No, that's dumb. That's illogical, and God does not do illogical things. But he is big, and he is strong, and he, he is mighty. And there's almost nothing my God cannot do. Well, in summary, if you would note, this, to be sure, is a non-communicable attribute. We've learned this term, communicable, non-communicable. Non-communicable means we, we can't do this. We can possess potentia, right? We can possess certain power. We have strength in us. But we cannot possess omnipotentia. To the, to the unbeliever, this strikes at your pride. If you have not come to the point where you have surrendered to this almighty God, hearing this today strikes pride in you because you think you're so tough, don't you, unbeliever? You think you're so self-sufficient. 
You think you're so strong and so invincible and nothing's going to take you down and a little bug can have you laying flat on your back and possibly flat in your grave in a moment. We understand this as believers. But I'm speaking to the unbeliever today who doesn't get this. And they hear the power of God and they, rather than surrendering to it, it it causes them to boast out even more. And this is why Paul says, "I I will not boast in anything anything other than my weakness. I will not boast in anything other than Christ. It's my weakness for when I am weak, finish it, then I am strong. You see, but when you're strong, when you think you've got your life together and your act all together and you got everything made and you don't need the the crutch of religion or the crutch of God, you're weak. You're weak. But to the believer, oh, it's a completely different view of God, is it not? To the believer, this is comfort. Oh, it might tickle our pride a little bit because God's working on that with us and we all need to be more humble. But it brings comfort. The, the, the believer knows he's weak deep down, though. The believer knows he's frail. He knows he needs a defender God. Lord Sabaoth, that means Lord of armies. We sang it this morning. Lord of armies to come to our defense. He knows he's weak. He knows he needs rescue. And he needs a God who loves him and who knows him despite his weaknesses and frailties and sin to come to his rescue. So he taps into the omnipotent God, the omnipotent Christ, the omnipotent defender. This reminds me of that blessed passage in Isaiah 40. You know it, right? Beginning in verse 28, you've heard these words. Do you not know? It's kind of like, where where have you been? (laughs) Are, Are you ignorant? Have you not been on the planet long? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, we know that, right? We've studied his eternity. The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth does not become tired or weary. What a blessed truth. His understanding is unscrutable. His knowledge, his his omniscience. And he gives strength to the weary. And him who lacks might, he increases power. The God of power gives strength power and strength to those who lack it but if you have it if you're good to go if you don't need it you're not going to get it but to the weak he gives power and though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly i think of my own son and he's he's training for oh my goodness he's training for war is what he's doing and i see the strength of his youth as he exercises and prepares his mind and his body uh, for war. And it says here that the youths grow weary and tired. And I look at him, I'm like, he never ends. He just goes and he works all day. And, And vigorous young men, they will stumble. Yet those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. But do you see the connection, beloved? You have to be tied into the omnipotent God. You can't do this on your own. Even the best of youth will fail. And so this brings the believer comfort. Well, I need to wrap up this lesson today on omnipotence. I hope you've been challenged by it. There's a couple of other things we ought to work through before we get out of this text here. I want to talk to you now as we close. If you flip the page to the back, the practical impact of the omnis. 
You say, Eli, you are really in the clouds. You got all this theology and you're way up. I mean, all these words I can't even understand. There's a practical impact to this, though. So if you can just kind of roll with it as we go here. Where where do we go with this? What's a reasonable human response to some of this other than just throwing your hands up and saying, "I, I can't even fathom this, God? There is a response. And it's in the text here. Let's look first at verses 17 and 18. And as you look there, would you write in your notes that a proper understanding of the omnis, as we have nicknamed them, establishes the believer's security. Would you put security in that blank? We've seen this, right? In a world where men and women are insecure, and rightfully so, The omnis establish the believer's security. Look at verse 17. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast the sum of them. We can relate. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. And here's where the security is. When I awake, I am still with thee. And this is the aspect of a child just reaching the point to the, their, where their mind is blown with the realities around them, and they perhaps might just fall asleep to it all. And some of you are thinking, yeah, I could fall asleep in this sermon. But here's a child that just falls asleep in his, in his maker's hands, and then he might stir, and he might wake. Remember the tender moments of your little babies in your arms, and they stir, and they awake, and they see your face, mom. They see your face, dad, and they just kind of go back to sleep, and they are resting in the security that is offered. We see this with our parents and children. Do we see this with our God, that he wants to be our security? The omnis answer the deepest insecurities and fears and anxieties that we have. And this idea of being awakened and needing to go back to sleep, and trust me, I know what it means to lie awake at night. I know what it means to lose sleep due to anxiety and and anxious situations that life throws at us. I know what this is like, and God knows, and your Heavenly Father knows, and your Heavenly Father knows what you need before you even ask for it. So many things can keep us awake at night, but... The believer's security is established when that does occur. We fall back asleep into the trust and love of God. Let me give you a second one here. Not only does it establish the believer's security, but the omnis unmask human depravity. Did you get that? It unmasks human depravity. Look at verse 19. Oh, this is wild language here. Oh, that thou would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. Interesting that David puts bloodshed in the context of being skillfully wrought and woven together in the safety and security of a mother's womb. Bloodshed. And here David cries out in justice, calling upon the justice of God to come down. Oh, that thou would slay them, O God. Depart from me, you men of bloodshed. For they speak against thee wickedly. And Your enemies take your name in vain. Oh, we see this every day. And then it gets worse here, verse 21. It says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? And just in case you miss that word, he says it again in 22. He says, I hate them with the utmost hatred. 
they, that is your enemies, have become my enemies. This is amazing. Three times he uses the word hate. Oh no, we're Christians, we're not supposed to do that, right? Well, listen, this speaks to the imprecatory, uh, imprecatory nature of the Psalms. The Psalms cry out to God in justice. And there are times in your life, if you have not experienced them, you will where you see the injustice in the land and you see that there is nobody that can answer this injustice but God and you cry out to God, bring justice. Now we have not gotten to the attribute of God's justice. That's going to come. That's going to be our last attribute. There's a lot to learn before we can jump into the justice of God. But it's an extension of his holiness here. This is a manifestation of his holiness. And you guys remember, whenever we teach about an attribute of God, you can never teach about an attribute of God in absence of the other attributes, right? So, the omnipotence of God is a holy omnipotence, right? It's a righteous omnipotence. It's a loving omnipotence. We've covered this. It's a merciful omnipotence. But it's also a wrathful and righteous and judging omnipotence, which will come, and that's what we have in these verses here. This is calling down the wrath of God on God's enemies, and there's nothing wrong with that. But you have to note something here. Uh, note the text that it says, um, uh, verse 19, Oh, that thou would slay the wicked, O God. We don't have permission to slay the wicked. We don't take the law into our own hands. We don't take justice into our own hands. It's not saying, I'm going to slay them. That would be completely afoul of what this teaches. This is simply saying that we leave matters of final justice in the hands of God, but we leave them in the hands of God. We bring them there. We take them to him through prayer, and we deposit them in God's hands to deal with. And this is my prayer. This is what I would have you do, God, but it's your call. You're the judge of the universe. You are the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God who sees all. And what he's saying by this is uh, you see everything. You have a perspective here, God, that I don't share. And that's, this is the idea. Here. This is why we hand matters of justice to God. And man, I could digress here. I'd probably get in trouble, but I, let me just tell you this. I have, um, <clears throat> I have lived through, I've, I've lost track how many officer-involved shootings that I've been involved in. But when you see one of these things play out in front of you and you rewind the tape and you look at what's going on here and you, you, re you rewind the life of, of the individual involved, I need to be very careful here, but the Christian can see God's hand at work everywhere. Let's just leave it at that, right? We believe this. The Christian can see God's hands at work everywhere. And it's a manifestation of justice sometimes. But we need to give you one more before we leave here. Not only does it establish the believer's security, not only does it unmask our human depravity, but it, it also advances personal integrity. You can't miss this last point here. Verses 23 and 24. It advances personal integrity. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me. You see how we're wrapping this up? You see how this is now making sense here? I, you've just prayed down the wrath of God on somebody. I know. And that's why I'm saying, God, check me. Check my math, God. 
if there's any hurtful way in me, and then I love this, and lead me, lead me, O oh God, in the way everlasting. Lead me in the right way. Lead me in the straight way that leads to eternal life. Uh, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know everything, God. Uh, I, I don't see everything. I'm not everywhere, God. And God, I am certainly not all-powerful to deal with the problems of this unjust land, but you are. You are all of those things. And so try me, test me on this, Lord. I can be wrong. I'm limited in all of these factors, and so I must have my integrity dealt with in this process. And don't you feel like even today, just as a result of listening to this message, your integrity is just advanced a little bit more? And maybe your prayer life will be advanced a little bit more and deal with some of the blights on this land and call down God to action and to move. But at the end of the day, we have to be able to say, but Lord, you're the king of the earth. I mean, I'd, it's a good thing I'm not running the universe. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, this, wor this world would look pretty different if I were in charge of it. You say, well, I, I, don't like how, I don't like that. I don't like how that works. That's fine. You don't have to like it. You can just go make your own universe. And you can go make your own world how you want it to run. But until you do that, we submit to how God has this run. And his word gives us security. But it doesn't dodge, dodge our depravity. But it still, in the end, advances human depravity. Well, we need to conclude. I hope this has been an encouragement to you today. I hope you view the omnis in different light and uh, that it would continue to just be a source of strength for you as a believer and encouragement to you as a child of God. Let's conclude our service as we stand together and uh, offer a, a brief moment of prayer to the omnipotent God. Lord God, indeed you are a mighty fortress, and though this world with devils filled does threaten to undo us, um, Lord, we know that uh, you have willed your truth to triumph through us. And Father, there are just so many amazing truths that we touched on today, Lord. The, the one that I just want to leave with for my own heart, Lord, is you're running this universe, and you're in charge of it, and you're powerful enough to, to make what has to happen happen, Lord. I pray for this congregation. I thank you for their attentiveness to your word and their enthusiasm towards it. I pray that they would, as a result of this message and truth that they've heard today, gain a needed confidence, a confidence not only in who they are, but in who you are because you've made them. Lord, if there is anybody here today that struggles with self-identity or purpose or even looks, as, as vain as that may be, Lord, they are real complexities that we deal with, Lord, and just, just give the assurance to each and every soul here today that they have been made so carefully and skillfully by you. Father, if there would be an unbeliever here today, somebody who has not come to grips with who you are, somebody who does not know you, Lord, may they be unmasked. May, may, they be, may they, their heart be manifested to themselves. And Father, may, it be, uh, may they be unmasked that they would be able to see clearly and be able to see you for who you really are and that they would receive your Son who is the perfect, perfect reflection and perfect embodiment of all of these attributes, including the attributes that we have studied today. 
for Christ himself said, all power has been given unto me. Go therefore, Lord, and may we be good witnesses. May we be, be people that speak from integrity, but not be afraid to speak to depravity because we are individuals who live with such security. And we ask all of this in the name of your Son, for your glory. Amen. All right.